0: As far as the Islamist tradition is concerned, AKP is very hegemonic, and Erdogan is, uh, it's definitely that he has, in my opinion, at this point, established a full equation of party and leader. At this point, AKP is Erdogan, and Erdogan is AKP. A sort
1: of authoritarian form of neoliberalism. An authoritarian form of neoliberalism. <laughs> Authoritarian. It's new a fake term anyway. Sorry oh. for you coming. No, sorry, I was just making a face of a shit face. Um uh, yes. let <laughs> me just come up everyone again. Um guys, I'm um, gonna come in and see if we can't so speak excellents, the greatest of the greatest. Hey, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? In last week's episode, we visited Colombia, where the right unfortunately held on in a general election. Today we're talking about Turkey, where the right held on in a general election. Erdogan's coalition held on to an absolute majority against a new opposition alliance of secularists and Islamists. But pay attention, this isn't just another tale of conservative stability. Turkey's been in turmoil from 2013 onwards, and developments there are not only of regional importance, but illuminates many of the key trends in politics today from identity politics to the new authoritarianism. And the key political figure there seems to embody so many global political trajectories. Aryan might not be just another oriental strongman, but actually be of a piece with western developments. So first off you're going to hear the regular Alpha Bunga Bunga crew outlining some key points of interest. Then we're dialing up Yasmin Yilmaz, an expert in Turkish political economy, currently doing a PhD in sociology at the Grad Center at City University of New York. We'll close up, as usual, by seeing if we can't generalize some of what we've learned. All right. Hello, listener. This is Alex Hochuli here in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I've also got Ben Fogel with me in Sao Paulo, Brazil. We have George Hoare in London and Phil Conliffe in Canterbury, in the UK. Uh, all four of us are here to discuss Turkey. Um, as you heard in the introduction, there's been an election. It's another election in which, you know, maybe not the most exciting outcome happened. The right uh, held on and won. So, um, I guess the the interesting thing is to try to chart out what the lessons are to draw from this. Um, George, do you have any thoughts? What you know? Did you follow this election?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess what I'm really looking looking forward to hearing about is a little bit of the the context because I think you get a pretty one dimensional picture from a lot of the Anglophone media. So a little bit of the history of the AKP, the personal background of uh, Yaman Erdogan as well. So. Yeah, I guess putting it into a little bit more of a detailed picture and something also about the role of the left as well, how that how that fits in.
1: Yeah, and I guess like if you if you were to dumbly follow the kind of mainstream Western media narrative on Turkey, you would have for a long time, for about a decade or more, have been thinking, yeah, this Erdogan Erdogan guy is good. He's like a a good economic uh, competent manager, and he kind of maybe is doing a kind of version of Christian democracy in turkey like a kind of center-right moderate islamist thing and you know yeah we're, we're okay with that uh, and then suddenly he's no he's this nasty authoritarian
3: <clears throat> i've actually been following turkey for some years now since i was there in 2015 and i've read uh, quite a bit about turkish history and recent turkish politics but it's quite clear one of the most remarkable things about uh, the AKP's time in power, and that's Erdogan's party, is that it's transformed so many times. It's been in bed with everyone from a organization of sort of like uh, secretive religious freemasons type Gulenists that try to take over the state from it to the nationalist rights. It is the Islamist party has always been, uh, you know, at odds with. And furthermore, he's gone in bed from the sort of Bush axis of evil alliance to uh, Putin and rejoin the sort of axis of evil. Uh, It's really, he's shown a remarkable capacity for change. And I think what's really important in this episode, I think, is to get a sense of what are the economic and political dynamics that go beyond the sort of like uh, excess of voluntarism on his part.
1: Yeah, no, that sounds good. And we're going to dial up uh, Yasmin Yilmaz right now to talk to her a bit more about these issues.
3: Uh, Welcome to the show. Um, Let's start off with talking about... uh, the most recent events in turkey which is of course last week's elections uh, there was a presidential and general election in turkey which saw uh, erdogan the current turkish uh, president and his akp party and its coalition emerge victorious this was despite there being a lot of talk in the anglophone media particularly in the guardian the new york times about this how this might be the demise of uh, erdogan's coalition in the beginning of the end for the turkish leader um, can you just outline what exactly happened in uh, these elections and uh, why they happened in the way they did.
0: Okay, um, so hi. And so, going into the elections, the anticipation was that the signs of an economic crisis were st- starting to manifest themselves, and the opposition, for the first time in over a decade, ha- seemed to be running with viable candidates who could both um, attract voters from the, the opposing base and also consolidate their own voters. So, this uh, the wave of optimism it really stems from the fact that this was just possible not that it was um probable in that context the uh, election results didn't confirm these expectations though a erdogan's party akp lost about seven percent of the votes um compared to the last elections in november 2015 the um, the widespread anticipation of a big downfall in the nationalist vote, um the smaller Coalition partners, so to speak, of Erdogan. Um, all an- analysts were anticipating something like five to six percent for the nationalists. If, uh, when they were able to now, the re- with the results, they were able to consolidate their uh, previously held 11 percent. So Erdogan was able to retain his control over both the presidency. He was a re-elected president, and um, he still has a majority in the parliament.
3: Turkey uh, has been in uh, turmoil, political turmoil since more or less 2013. We've had a uh, Gezi economic downturn, uh, terrorist attacks, the war in Syria, the attempted coup and the repression that followed. Um, personally, what has this been like? What has it been like uh, living in this context of people losing their jobs for political reasons, uh, planes flying over during a attempted coup, terrorist attacks, people being arrested that you may know? and of course the sort of consolidation of Erdogan as a uh, empowered uh, authoritarian leader
0: so i've only been living in i just i was living in turkey for only one year of this which was probably the most um, chaotic one between june 2015 when erdogan for the first time lost his uh, grip in, in in the parliament to um to, to the aftermath of the coup in august, until, until august 2016 and it is chaotic, to say the least. Uh, but life in Turkey, I guess, has been chaotic for most of us for a very long time. So,
1: I guess from outside, it seemed like Turkey was in a greater period of stability up until, mm-hmm. from around the turn of the century until about <laughs> 2013. And then things started happening and things started kind of falling apart and Erdogan started uh, gaining greater control, uh, sometimes through democratic means, sometimes not. Uh, I mean, has this been felt in Turkey? Is this something that people? Yes. Have, yeah.
0: Of course. I mean, uh, so Erdogan actually came into power in the aftermath of a, uh, the the biggest economic crisis in modern Turkish history, and at that point, Erdogan's uh, first seven to eight years can actually be read more um, more as a period of stabilization and normalization rather than Turkey making a more democratic or uh, advancement type move, because his um, what was prior to him was also even more anti-democratic in so many other terms, especially in terms of the Turkish breakdown. Can you just Turkish, break,
3: um, break down who was uh, prior to Erdogan?
0: So it was a series of coalitions, uh, basically a combination permutation game between five parties for over 15, 20 years. So the coalitions were not able to stay in power, either because of internal divisions or because of uh, various economic or socio-political factors but it is essentially since the early 80s turkish political and economic life has been had been very unstable and very um conflict-prone and especially the state's uh, primary primary method of um method of of deal, dealing with the the Kurdish conflict in the east was to impose stricter security measures, to um, deepen the war and to exacerbate the situation. So when Erdogan and his AKP came into power in 2002, it was on the um, it was on the tail end of a of a 20-year period like this. So the first seven to eight years of AKP is, is seen as normal in comparison to what had preceded it. But after 2007-2008, with the onset of the global financial crisis, the domestic domestic political and economic situation in Turkey also started to um, change a little. With the aftermath of the um, great uh, 2008-2007-2008 recession in the West, the markets, the credit markets, and the, the domestic economic situation in Turkey also started to be not as favorable to erdogan as it had been with that kind of tightening uh, came the 2013 threshold. that's when the state's security policies had also begun to revert back to what it was in the 90s the the economy was contracting for the first time in erdogan's tenure and you had white widespread process beginning in istanbul with the gezi park then spreading to the rest of the country culminating in what had Erdogan's been main um, method of attracting voters, which is to consolidate votes on, based on identity politics, to create a division of like us versus them, to headscarves versus the seculars. That, that kind so, of polarization.
4: I just wanted to jump in, mm-hmm. just if you could explain a bit more, um, this is Philip, by the way, mm-hmm. just to explain a bit more, what do you mean about identity politics in the Turkish context and the kind of identity politics that the AKP would deploy.
0: Okay, so identity politics in a Turkish context means uh, something different than it does in the West. But what we, when we use the term, we basically mean Erdogan's um, tenure in office has been co- has been consolidated on the backbone of a, a secularist state repressing uh, moderate to radical islam for um, for decades. And this could be in terms of uh, banning certain banning certain sex or banning cer- certain uh, establishments to uploading women from wearing headscarves in the public office to women attending uh, colleges with headscarves. So there had been a real um, base for this kind of um, divided society to, to speak of. And Erdogan's tenure has been one that basically said to his electorate, that if I go personally, or if my party goes, your your headscarf is now going to be up for debate once again. You are not going to be able to attend university once again. But because this is the elitist, Kemalist, uh, secularist mindset, if they ever get back into power, this kind of um, moderate Islam that has now made its way into uh, daily economic life and daily social life will again have to retreat back to its closed quarters. So that's what we basically mean when we say identity politics. Political parties have also been confined to these kinds of particular identities, whether it's the AKP to um, the headscarf, the families who wear the headscarf, or the Kurdish party to predominantly Kurdish voters, or the CHP to predominantly metropolitan, urban, and secularist um, people. So it is this kind of consolidation and polarization as well as
3: what do you mean my identity politics um, Alex has a question here
1: yeah I mean I guess to delve a little bit deeper into this um, what, are, what is the sort of social base of the AKP and where does it draw the support from so if I mean if it plays this sort of um, I mean I guess it's sort of conservative maybe sort of populist card in the sense that uh, mm-hmm. as you described the Kemalist leader are going to try to take your headscarf away um, who does that appeal to um, and maybe regionally in Turkey where, who does that appeal to
0: so regionally, uh, I AKP is the only party that can attract votes from all the regions in the countries. This is not the case for any of the other parties. But that's also a function of the fact that it has 50% of the votes. Naturally, it has some sort of presence uh, throughout the country. But predominantly speaking, for those familiar with Turkey's geography, what we call central to center-eastern Anatolia is its primary base of support. So... Uh, mostly confined to towns, smaller cities, uh, rural rural areas. It also has big presence in the metropoles, of course, but that's also, as I said, a function of the fact that the party has 50% support nationally.
1: Does that make sense? Yeah, no, and I mean, I guess to carry on, I get um, and to broaden it out. Um, so, I mean, in this recent election, obviously the AKP was mm-hmm. victorious, but it relied on certain allies. And I, as my understanding so far is that Erdogan has tried to draw in a new sort of allies, which might be a little bit different from the the sort of AKP's original sort of base and ideology, perhaps in a more nationalist
0: direction. Is that correct? So yes, uh, but this has been the case since the attempted since the attempted coup uh the akp had been mo- even before the attended at good, the akp had been moving more towards the nationalist and um more traditional nationalist is what we could call it mm-hmm. um line and the coup attempt and its aftermath really consolidated this kind of um alliance and the referendum the constitutional referendum of last year the both parties again ran as a formal alliance when the uh the yes camp as a formal alliance and this time they entered the elections together with Aydan as their joint presidential candidate. This is untraditional for the Islamist uh, heritage, you can say, Mm -hmm. but AKP has basically grown through a series of what we call mergers and acquisitions within the the right. So Aydan has allied with uh, right liberals, even left liberals at some point, all the various shades of center-right politics going to more... um, more radical Islamist elements to more moderate Islamist elements. It has been Aredon's strategy to hold on to power and to consolidate his own rule. to basically his, he does these kinds of uh, what, would, what could seem as untraditional alliances within the right. And he has essentially subsumed the entire right spectrum on, on the AKP. Um,
3: And on uh, the opposition to the AKP, it seems like there was another curious thing that happened during this election where you saw... The secular opposition, centered around uh, the CHP, get into bed with the religious opposition, who were traditionally mm-hmm. mortal enemies. Is it the case that uh, his power has bred strange bedfellows, and the same sort of process has been happening yeah. there?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the so the alliance was a very innovative move on the part of the opposition, one that Erdogan probably did not see coming, and that because of the uh, constitutional amendments, the 10% electoral threshold is basically deemed, is basically rendered um, irrelevant to formal alliances prior to the election. So basically, instead of having coalitions and coalition talks after the election, parties now enter into formal alliances prior to the election, which renders the 10% electoral threshold obsolete. That has been, that was the context in which the the radical Islamist Felicity party entered into the alliance theres was an alliance not of um, there was not, not so much of an ide- ideological alliance but a practical one between the CHP the Islamist Felicity party which turned out to be irrelevant an irrelevant force politically the anticipation was that they would be able to attract the um, religious devouts and vote who's unhappy with the AKP and also two parties of the center to the nationalists, right? Which also um, sound people of expectations.
4: Um, hi think- Yasmin, this is Philip again. I wanted just to jump in on this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, liberals for a very long time have portrayed Turkey as a um, successful um, example of a secular Muslim democracy. Mm-hmm. And now with the consolidation of Erdogan's power, and the um, long-term domination of the AKP, it would seem to confirm, you know, from the outside, it would appear to confirm all the worst kind of um, uh, concerns about whether or not democracy can spread outside the West, or whether or not democracy is compatible with Islam, and all those usual kind of themes. So I wondered if you could maybe just tell us a bit about... um, life in turkey i suppose mm-hmm. does it feel more kind of socially conservative under the akp has it become has there been more visible expression of religion in public or do you think that there is a um, perhaps a backlash developing against the akp's religious and social conservatism
0: so the anticipation in the West of Erdogan and the akp being this sort of uh, liberal religious islamist but yet secular and modern Party was the, and that this could be the way for it to make Islam and democracy compatible. The fallacy in that thinking was in thinking Aridon and AKP as being forces for democracy. For Erdogan and A- AKP, the democracy and democratic means have always been purely uh, instrumental and to be upheld only insofar as it served their part- particular interests at particular points of points of time. But I personally don't think Aridon had at any point let go of his vision for a more firmly religious more firmly sunni um state and society and in that respect throughout the years as he was able to consolidate power he has chipped away at what were previously deemed uh, secular privileges i guess in turkey whether it be from um shortening times of wholesale alcohol um of the whole what's the phrase, the sale of wholesale alcohol? Yeah,
3: that's, that's correct. I guess.
0: Um, to uh, various other, uh, um, let me, like, not eating outside at, during Ramadan in, just in smaller cities in central Anatolia was always difficult, but at this point it is now unthinkable. So there has definitely been a move socially and culturally towards more relig- religiosity and more conservatism and on top of this Aydan has revived this uh, soul of late Ottoman period and now the Ottoman symbols and the, the TV, even from TV shows you can see that there's a TV show after another about depicting one life of a sultan after another
1: So, so just to
3: jump and, in here okay, again mm-hmm. what is uh, Erdogan's final goal what is the goal of the AKP is it to create a new sultanate, what is it?
0: I think it's to consolidate a firmly religious and socially conservative um, state, not one like um, not a formal theocracy by by any standard, but a formally modern state that has very strong religious and conservative overtones and practices in its daily life. He definitely has some ambitions towards ex- towards greater influence in, within the region. Whether he'll succeed at that or not is a, is a different question that has other determinants besides his own political capacity, but domestically his project seems to be intact and um,
1: on its way. So, I mean, in terms of his project, I mean, I guess if we're trying to look at ways in which Erdogan might be challenged, what, uh, what are the kind of fissures that might be emerging? I mean he's had to of course in this recent election rely on a coalition rely on the nationalists more and uh-huh. i mean as you say this is a project of of creating hegemony for himself on the of hegemonizing right-wing forces in turkey um is there a, what, what cracks might we see i mean is there sections of the elite perhaps or the religious right or the Kemalist elite who might be starting to challenge Erdogan
0: or break with him so for whatever challenge that is to come for that to be sustainable and um actually effective it would have to come from its mass base and the fissures there are very prevalent the there's been about 120 percent increase in the price of for everything from onions to potatoes basic household consumption items mm-hmm. the price of meat per kilo has gone through the roof it's now almost unthinkable for any family with minimum wage to be able to purchase a kilo of meat uh, once a month, even once a month.
1: And is there evidence so, of, of this so far that, I mean, that these economic difficulties are putting pressure on the AKP and Erdogan? So the
0: evidence seems to be, and this is at this point purely um, pr- pr- purely pr- preliminary at this point. We'll see what's to come. But the fact that there has been a 7% drop in Erdogan's votes in very key cities, in very t- traditionally Erdogan's very strong co- Uh, strongholds. There has been a move from AKP to MHP. And one columnist a couple of days ago noted that there is this tendency of the electorate to, whenever they're unhappy with the ruling coalition, they tend to go uh, the Nationalist MHP. So this does suggest, just even on the surface, that Erdogan's base and Erdogan's electorate is seeing signs of uh, dismay and seeing signs of unrest but they're not yet yet ready to break ties with the party or break ties with the ruling coalition. So their way of voting for MHP meant keeping Erdogan in power, so keeping, so to speak, uh, um, the captain of the ship in place, but significantly altering the um, chain of command, so to
3: speak. Uh, George has a question here. George, can you come
2: in? (laughs) Yeah, so just, um, I guess some questions maybe about, about the left and the opposition. Um, more generally. So I guess one of the big questions is if um, many of the HDP, the main main left party, many of the mm. leaders have been the victims of political repression and are currently behind bars, um, how is it possible to be active on the left in the current moment in Turkey?
0: Well, the, certainly the fact that most of the HDP's um, leadership, and not, not just the leadership, but also its um, Rovercat is organizing at the neighborhood level or at the, the city level. There, that that has a crippling effect on on the um, on the trajectory of of organizing. But this is not this is not something new for anyone who's who's been organizing on the left or especially for the Kurds in Turkey. So I guess in, on that front, you can say that there's nothing new under the sun. The Mm. This is difficult for sure, and the fact that ATP was able to still amass 11 per, almost 12% of the votes is significant. But the way forward, it seems that there seems to be a big economic crisis approaching Turkey, and there's various scenarios as to how this is going to be um, managed or experienced, and all roads seem to be leading to some sort of IMF-type plan. Whether it's with the IMF or without the IMF, the basic tenants are going to be the same, and this is going to to disproportionately place the burden on the laboring and working masses. And the strategy forward seems to be organizing for that, organizing in anticipation of that. There are uh, local elections coming up in nine months, and the big cities, the big metropolitan municipalities of Istanbul, Ankara, Izmir, these are. Very important resources for any political uh, moment. That seems to, that, in my opinion, is a strategy for the left, for pushing mm-hmm. forward.
1: I wanted to push you a little bit more on, on the question of labor and um, what has mm-hmm. the AKP's rule over the past sixteen years um, and its sort of political form of sort of political economic management. What kind of transformations has that? Uh, Led to in, in Turkish society, what has been the role of labor? Have there been any changes in labor relations? Because um, you've mentioned sort of strikes and so on, I wanted to know also a little bit about that.
0: So AKP has pushed through a very aggressive neoliberal agenda with very minimal social um, conflict, and this has really been the um, the star of its like the the star in its record, especially as far as the west was concerned. The thir- first five to six years of the akp was a very aggressive imf program pushed through without virtually no um mass uprising against it and in that it has really crippled labor and it has really pacified labor mm. but over the past few years with the economic contractions now coming in labor is starting to flex its muscles again we, ha- we are seeing very limited but sure signs of this there but the problem the main issue facing Labour right now is that since the attended coup attempts with the martial law in place, the government has powers to outlaw any strikes based on the fact that it's a threat to national security. And Erdogan has been bragging about this at every business roundtable, at every business um, dinner or lunch he attends. He actually mockingly turns to the industrialists and says, why are you unhappy with martial law? We've, this is very good for you and it is actually very good for them it's working very well for them so that's the primary challenge facing any labour organisation at this point
3: um, So um, how does this relate to the Kurdish question what does it occur, um, in, uh, in in the status of the left of the Kurdish, in the Kurdish question in terms of the recent Turkish
0: politics So the Kurdish question seems to be on hold in a sense the, the government has Relinquished all intent of negotiating with the PKK or HTP, or negotiating with the PKK through HTP. There seems to be no new rounds of negotiations or peacemaking on the table. The level of conflict has been relatively low over the past year. I guess this is not past year, but the past six months, you can say the level of conflict within Turkish borders has been relatively low. The Turkish state is engaged is still engaged in attacks and airborne attacks um, on Kandil and areas of Kurdish dominance in Syria, so the more of the focus of both organizations of both the state and the PKK seems to be the focusing on Syria at this point.
3: And finally, can you uh, just to end off the uh, interview, can you just give us some a mm-hmm. uh, little bit of a um, Turkey's leaders personal biography? He has kind of an interesting, he had a quite an interesting life and many incarnations mm-hmm. throughout the years. And he also has a particularly troublesome brood, from what I understand. His family has been uh, quite controversial, involved in a number of scandals.
0: Yes. Yeah. So um, Aydan comes from, from youth organizing, from student organizing of the late 70s, and from the Islamist uh, tradition. He actually was a semi-professional soccer player at some point, and had he gone that route, maybe all of our lives would have been different.
4: <laughs> but See, he didn't. That Football so, saves
3: lives.
0: Yes. Yeah, so he stayed in politics and he rose through the ranks of the of the Islamist movement. And he was mayor of Istanbul at very early point in his career. In the early nineties, was imprisoned. And upon his release from prison, he was already very popular prior to his uh, six months stay in prison. But once he was out, there was really no force containing him. And he and a group of others from the Islam- from the traditional Islamist movement at that point, led what was called the um, new wave-type movement and established the AKP. And AKP came, as I said, on the back of this uh, big economic crisis when all the other parties of the center, both left and right, were crushed. And Erdogan has not only uh, gotten rid of his political enemies from opposing forces, but he's also gotten rid of his contenders from within his own party. And my has been- by, gut, by getting rid of, I mean just making them politically irrelevant and politically mm. huh. not, 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 um, not a force to be contended. So Aydan's transformation over the years has not only been one from a activist, low-level um, participant in a, in a wider political movement to a single man ruling over an entire party and now what's ruling over the entire right, the entire Islamist movement, which is what this last election has shown, when the other contending Islamist party got only 1% of the vote. This means that as far as the Islamist tradition is concerned, AKP is very hegemonic, and Erdogan is, uh, it's definitely that he has, in my opinion at this point, established a full um, equation of party and leader. At this point, AKP is Erdogan, and Erdogan is AKP. And in terms of his family life, he's also gotten significantly richer through this, um, through his tenure as prime minister and president. And his family, I guess, what you were alluding to, Ben, is that one of his sons was actually involved in a car crash, leading to the death of a singer, in early in career. And he's very far from the public eye. And the other one seems to be dealing with all these um, corruption and bribery the other one seems to be taking care of all that kind of stuff and the the son-in-law is what erdogan is sort of raising to be his successor politically so
2: do you think it's accurate to describe um them as fail sons some of his uh his brood because this is uh this is a it just means i guess the useless uh sons yeah. <laughs> of political leaders around the world
0: yes yeah, i guess you you could call them that Yeah. The daughters and the son-in-law are definitely much more capable.
2: So, um, in terms of his international allies, which I think you you um, mentioned uh, briefly, could you expand on that a little bit? Who's he, who's he looked to ally with internationally?
0: Well, Erdogan is a very pragmatic leader. I don't think he views alliances at at all in a ideological or a principle line. Uh, If it's Merkel that he needs to ally with, he'll ally with Merkel. If it's Putin, he'll ally with Putin. of that's how he was able to consolidate the right in Turkey, and that's how he seems to be sustaining his tenure in the West as well.
1: All right, thanks to Yasmin Yilmaz, who we were just talking to there about the state of affairs in Turkey. To draw out some broader conclusions, as we like to do at the end of the interview, uh... At the end of the interview, we were talking about Erdogan and a bit of his own personal history, but I think it'd be interesting to pull out what we think about Erdogan and what he might represent as a political figure of our times. Uh, He is said by some to represent an authoritarian form of neoliberalism. You might put him in the same camp as Putin in Russia or Modi in India, but... I think what's also interesting is that he seems to not just be authoritarian, but increasingly rely on social conservatism. So like Putin in Russia, who relies on um, orthodox Christianity to bolster his rule, or Modi in India, which is obviously Hindu nationalist. This seems to me, and this is an open question to you guys, uh, this seems to be a long way from this sort of sunny liberalism of Blair and Clinton, for example. Um, Philip, any thoughts on this?
4: I think he does represent a kind of model of an autocratic um, an autocratic new model of political change I suppose and also expresses I suppose the tensions the tensions and the tightening of all the problems that we're seeing around the world since the 2008 crisis so I suppose the thing is though the very fact that we're talking about it I think also goes to show um, how much things have changed maybe over the last 10 20 years The very fact, I mean, just the sheer fact of Turkey's significance, you know, it's a much more important country um, given by its kind of demographic and economic weight and its political role in the Middle East. Um, And I think that probably matters as well, that a lot of the trends and things that we're talking about reflect a world order in which um, more and more countries are more important um, by virtue of all the global economic growth and globalization that we've seen over the last 30 years.
2: I mean, is it a question? Is it a change of packaging? So, Alex, you mentioned the sunny liberalism of Blair and Clinton. I mean, there's been countless books written on how they also had um, various forms of social conservatism, but maybe just packaged it in a slightly more upbeat, uh, friendly way. Yeah, and it's sorry, the- that was a question. I didn't, I didn't up my voice, but that's <laughs> you know, I mean, is 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 it a question of? I mean, is is this just a new, new packaging with a bit more of a multipolar global situation, as Phil mentioned, rather think, than a fundamental change in neoliberalism?
1: Uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, there's two things, I guess, one, that you're right at pointing out that, you know, Blair and Clinton did have authoritarian tendencies, sometimes did rely on more social conservative policies. I mean, if we were to roll back a little bit further in the history of neoliberalism and power, obviously, Thatcher and Reagan were much more obviously socially conservative, and it was only at the end of the Cold War when you had this breakout of a more maybe sunny, sunny sort of version of it. Um, but I guess that's a strain that's always been there in neoliberalism—a sort of authoritarian and socially conservative tendency. But I think I guess the other thing, and I'm going to come to Ben here, is that this might also be something of the semi, the global semi-periphery, that in maybe the kind of core capitalist nations you could maintain a more liberal neoliberalism if you want to call it that Um, whereas in the semi-periphery it has had to be more nakedly authoritarian i
3: i I have had i had some thoughts about this and uh, particularly after having been in europe for a few weeks and having many conversations about nationalism there which seems to be an extremely dirty word people hear it and they just turn their brains off in that uh Globalization was presumed in the classic end-of-history narrative to be a sort of fertilizing ground for sowing the seeds of liberal, pluralistic values. But in some sense, it has done the opposite. Uh, by the removal of political alternatives, whether it be the left uh, or some forms of sort of secular nationalism uh, with some sort of developmentalist aspects as were common across the semi-periphery, it has instead sowed the seeds of a... Uh, authoritarian turn in different places in the sense that when people uh, basically see no alternative to adopt some sort of free market things what do you have as a alternative but to uh, go back to the sort of classic uh, tropes of authoritarianism and differentiating people in the sense and in this case uh, it also relies as portraying this as some sort of like anti-elite thing in the case of Turkey it's the sort of uh, you know snobby secular um types who live in istanbul and see themselves as orientating more towards europe in the same sense it was the sort of um, uh, elite who lives in coastal cities in the united states who uh believe so firmly in these sort of values that, may, that are essentially a form of i guess political virtue signaling, we are better than them without having to Mm. build an inclusive political program because, you know, there is no alternative to the existing order. And I think part of the desperation that you've seen, it's utter desperation. I mean, reading The Guardian, an always painful experience, really shows this, is that people are like, you know, the and we've talked about this in previous episodes, everything is okay right now. It would be the most uh, happy, richest, prosperous, uh, and egalitarian time in history, if that's the case, why does almost no one, especially among people who do not offer this sort of shiny international existence, that we can fly across the world and uh, enjoy the fruits of our passports, uh, feel this way?
1: I like the fruits of our passports. <laughs> that's a good That's a good coin. But no, I think you're right. And I think it's interesting to see that dynamic um, between sort of well-to-do metropolitan types who are kind of fairly comfortable with the current situation and... Uh, a sort of resurgent right which in real practical terms doesn't offer much different in policy terms but uh, at least in terms of maybe kind of cultural terms um, and certainly in in its authoritarianism kind of is is distinguished distinguishes itself from the more I guess you know centrism as we'd call it in you know we'd call it sort of in Britain in America in Turkey it obviously has it comes under different terms
3: I mean I think Turkey is a great example Istanbul which is a real global Megacity with a, a metro area of 18 million, and which has a country classic semi peripheral problem where there's one urban center or a few urban centers that pull people from the countryside and are thrown by economic compulsion and are thrown into this jarring way of life. Uh, in these cases of sort of urban crises where uh, rarely the sort of model development that's championed by the AKP in Istanbul is sort of like soulless uh, golf style apartment blocks, and you see the same in cities like Cairo. Uh, what they can do, they can play to identity politics, they can play to signaling things about uh, headscarves and th- ways of sort of like saying, at least we include you in the order, which was sort of a classic theme of populism. We be one of you. And in this case, it's uh, sort of like throwing easy shots at, you know, alcohol loving secular elites who felt that Istanbul was theirs. And this sort of like cultural battle in the urban centers is also a big part of this Uh, new wave of politics. And I think if you do a quick tour across sort of megacities like this, you find many of the same tropes, Mm. including Toronto, where Doug Ford won the same thing with a base (laughs) among immigrants, including lots of Muslim Somali immigrants.
1: So as you heard Ben concluding just then, there's some general trends we identify in really different situations in places shaped by totally different histories. This is actually what we do here at Alpha Bunga Bunga, charting the breakdown of the neoliberal order. We alternate between specific country analyses and episodes looking at big ideas. What are the ideologies shaping our time? And can we plot a new political spectrum that will order future struggles? If you don't follow us on Twitter and like what we do, check us out at bunga Bunga, that's all in one word, and get in touch on Facebook, email, Twitter, or even on Instagram. Um, Many of you recently have got in touch with great ideas for topics you think we really need to be covering, and it's greatly appreciated. We'll be doing those soon. We're also adding readings to the show notes, as lots of you have requested it. And we're back with more soon. In the meantime, tell your friends about the podcast at the end of The End of History. Catch you later. Bye-bye.